to know that um, several of us went to Israel, and I don't want to say too much about that this morning, other than to say two things about it. It was probably the hardest thing I've ever done, and maybe the two best weeks of my life. Had nothing to do with the land. Well, a little bit. I can't completely say that. But it had to do everything with the people that I got to spend two weeks with. 30 of which or more are, are part of this family. And I had a true experience of stepping into something that felt utterly impossible. I mean, impossible for me. I remember already on the second day, as I looked at like the whole thing, I thought, I can't do this. I, I, there's no way this is humanly possible for me. And what God just said to me in that moment is just, it's okay. Just take another step in your weakness, in your brokenness, and we'll get, get you through this. And I had a true experience of, of Deuteronomy 1, verse 31, where it says, And in the wilderness, there you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way until you reach this place. And there's nothing better than that. There's nothing better than we step out of that place where we can do it, have control to a place where this is impossible. So, um, that's the Christian life. All right, uh, Ephesians uh, 4 is where we are today. Again, I'm going to ask for a ton of grace. (laughs) We got back, I think it was Thursday. So, um, but what a text. I'm going to actually start in verse 15, I think, or 14, I think Greg was in this, these verses last week, and then we'll look at the second half, and then the first two verses of chapter 5. So, you sit for my words, but we stand for God's, God's words. Let's stand. Then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead... Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding. They're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. They are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught in regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God 
in righteousness and holiness that is truth. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood. You must speak truthfully to your neighbor. For you're all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have, so- have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind, compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. And walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is God's word. You can be seated. Okay, the first three chapters of Ephesians, much like the first eight chapters of Romans, are in the indicative mood. Now, what's that? The indicative mood is just simply stating what is. This is what you are, Christian. Now, in chapters 4 through 6, the mood switches from the, from the indicative to the imperative. In other words, in light of what you are, be this, do this. So here's the question that I want to ask today in light of the text we just read. Is God changing you? Is he? Are you a different person today than you were six months ago? Is he changing you? Now, for my sake, when I, when I read Paul and I teach Paul, I need an outline. So I'm going to give you the outline as to where we're going this morning. Here it is. Number one, what is it that initiates change? Number two, what kind of change are we talking about? Number three, how is it that we change? Man, that's about as organized as I've been in a sermon. But there you have it, okay? Now you can just start filling in the blanks. Um, Okay, this first question, what initiates change? Now, the text that I just read, I think it hangs on the word truth. Starting in verse 15, it says, speak the truth in love. Then going down to verse 21, when you heard about Christ and you were taught in him in accordance with the truth, that is Jesus. Then in verse 24, and you notice how I I read it differently than your NIV, but it says to put on the new self created to be like God in his righteousness 
and holiness according to his truth. And then verse 25, speak truth. And so it's really, I think, this word truth that Paul is laying out here that this whole text hangs. In fact, uh, verses 14 through 21, I think Paul shows the contrast between those who are in the truth, who know the truth, and who live truthfully, and those who are ignorant, who are in the dark, and who live a lie. I want us to see this. Because look at verse 14. It says, Then you will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceit or their deceitful scheming. This cunning, this manipulation, this deceitful scheming, it describes one group of people. And then verse 15, he says, But you, you speak the truth in love. And the one produces chaos, but truth produces growth. It's truth. Truth is what makes all the difference. Verse 19, we see the same thing. He talks about the Gentiles, which is just another way of saying the world. The world, he says, is characterized by certain things. Look at these things. First of all, there's a loss of sensitivity. Their hearts are calloused. The word there means to feel No pain for those who are in pain. The world is also given over to sexual desire, carnal living. The world is also given over to greed and this continual lust for more. And I say, boy, does that sound familiar? Does that sound like our world? I think Paul fleshes this whole thing out even a little bit more in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. Listen to how Paul says this about the world. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. And folks, we are in the last days. The last days started with the death and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. In those last days, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, not lovers of the good, but treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having this form of godliness but denying its power, Paul says, have nothing to do with them. Because that's the world. That's the world we live in. In fact, when we got home from Israel, I was just kind of thinking to myself, I mean, I was spent. I'm just like, man, I deserve, a, I deserve a break right now. So I looked at the movies and did it really quick, and the family wanted to go see Spider-Man. So we went to Spider-Man. And hear me on this, okay? I am not judging anyone who goes to Spider-Man, okay? There's my qualification, Because I didn't even make it to the movie. Shame on me for bringing my kids, namely my daughter, even to the previews. In 10 short minutes, I bet I saw 50 killings the whole time I'm doing this to Kate. She has ears. There were several sex scenes. 
And then I'm just looking around the theater, and I'm seeing just a bunch of zombies just sitting there. And I just said to myself, get out of here now. Everything in me wanted to speak into that, and I bit my tongue as hard as I could, because I've done that before, and Libby doesn't like that. So, (laughs) we're out of here. And what I want us to know, a movie is not just a movie. Let's not be that ignorant, people. In fact, look at verse 14. Then you will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. You know what the word teaching is there? Doctrine. Christians aren't the only ones with doctrine. Our world has a doctrine, they have a worldview, and they are preaching it and propagating it every single day. And then this, Paul just lays out what this doctrine of our world produces. And I had a long talk with my kids about this. And you know what's sad? They had never seen this. They had never thought this. They had never known that a movie actually has a worldview and an ideology and a doctrine behind it. And the thing that it produces is all the stuff of verse 19. Loss of all sensitivity. Every kind of sensuality. Indulging in every kind of impurity and full of me needing more. You know what Paul says about all this? Verse 17 I tell you this, I insist on it in the Lord. This kind of thinking is futile. In fact, that word futile means vain or empty. Our world is driven by a doctrine that is completely empty, bankrupt, vanity. And that's why he says in verse 18, it's dark, it's separated from the life of God, and they are ignorant. They're ignorant of what? What are they ignorant of? Truth. Truth. What truth? God's truth. And I just want to go down a little bit of a rabbit trail right now because I, more and more, I felt this as a youth pastor and I feel now as a pastor, it's, it's even become greater. That we live in a day when we are told no one has a corner on truth. That truth in itself, it's unattainable. And if anyone has the audacity to believe in a truth or to claim a truth, they are either a fundamentalist or a terrorist or both. In fact, I remember uh, one of the first books I had to read at college was The Closing of the American Mind by Alan Bloom. Alan Bloom starts off this book with this statement. He's a professor at Harvard, and he says, there's one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of. Almost every student entering the university believes 
or says he believes that truth is relevant. The end thing today is skepticism or cynicism. And we have a fancy term for this called postmodernity. And basically, it's this idea that there's no overarching truth, that truth is simply in the eye of the beholder. In other words, there is no truth. Everything is relevant to you. You are the standard of what's true. But see, here's what our generation doesn't understand. That to dogmatically say that truth is relative is actually a what? It's a dogma. To say that we can claim no truth is actually a truth claim. It's a doctrine. It's a creed. And they are mandating this creed upon everyone. And there are thought police today. It's called political correctness. And we are living in a day when we are told we can no longer believe in absolute truth. And the person who does is a threat to society. Because absolute truth, to believe that, according to them, makes one a hater, a fundamentalist, and a terrorist. But I want to say this. Because there could be a skeptic and a cynic in the room today. There could be several of you. If you think we can do without truth, if you think all truth is relative, I want to say, for you to say no one has a corner on truth is having a corner on the truth. And to impose this standard of truthlessness onto a people who actually claim truth you are actually imposing upon us a fundamental claim that makes you a fundamentalist. Yeah. Good. You were tracking with that. <laughs> so the reason I go down this rabbit trail this morning is because Paul is dealing with truth. And what he's saying here, it's truth is not the problem. But how we use truth can sometimes be the problem. Because here's where I, I actually conclude that the postmoderns have it right. See, postmoderns not only say wrongly that truth is impossible, but what they have rightly noticed is this connection between truth and power. That people in power have historically used the truth to elevate themselves, to exclude others, to control, to manipulate, to beat up, to put down, all those kinds of things. And I think when you look at history, honestly, you look at Christianity. Look at all the power plays that have been done in the, in the name of the truth of Christianity. I mean, from the Crusades to the Inquisition... <laughs> To slavery, people in power have used Christianity, the truth of Christianity, whether it's popes, whether it's priests, whether it's presidents, or even simply parents, to use truth, to beat people up, 
to control them, to manipulate them. I mean, even in the most day-to-day, Christians have used truth to elevate some, to elevate me, to elevate us. We're right, they're wrong, to exclude people, to beat them up, to bully them, to control people, to manipulate them. But see, isn't that what the postmoderns are doing today? Aren't they using this claim that there is no truth, that all things are relative to actually elevate themselves in their rightness, to exclude others in their wrongness, and to bully, and to manipulate, and to control? And see, their dogma that all truth claims are a power trip is actually a power trip. I would like to be on this side of things. I like where we are today. Now, Paul picks up, I think, on this connection between truth and power. Because when you look at verse 14, he talks about being infants tossed back and forth by this doctrine. That's what people do. They they, they use truth to, to keep one down, to keep one as an infant. But then Paul, in verse 15, talks about, no, but we speak the truth in love. So Paul is not saying, hey, let's just get rid of truth, because to Paul, truth is not the problem, but rather it's how we use truth. And Paul says, basically, I know a truth that doesn't exclude people. It's not here to control and manipulate and beat people up, but it's a truth that lifts people up. It grows them. It empowers them. And that truth is the truth of Christ. I want you to think for a moment what this truth is. It is a set of propositions, but it's more than a set of propositions. It's truth that comes to us in a person. In fact, the only way that we'll ever know this truth and be changed by this truth is It's not enough to just know about it or to get the information. We need to know this truth personally. We need to personally encounter it. Because without that, it's just information. But to know this truth and to be changed by this truth, we need a personal encounter with the person that makes up this truth. And that's why I look at what Paul says in verse 18. He says, They are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them due to what? Due to the hardening of their hearts. Listen. People are not hard-hearted because they're ignorant, but they're ignorant because they're hard-hearted. Because when it comes to this truth, this truth of all truths that God has given to us in the truth of Christ, in our most natural state, we are threatened by this truth. Our hearts are too insecure to handle this truth. We recoil at it. Because what it does is it actually causes us to see who we are and how flawed we've become. I think Jack Nicholson said it best. You want truth? You want truth? You can't handle the truth. The natural human heart could never handle the truth of Jesus. 
We would never come to this truth on our own, through our own clever reasoning or our apologetics or all these things that are useful, but at the end of the day, we need him. We need the grace of God to open the eyes of our heart so we can see. We need to encounter him. It's truth that is intensely personal, and and it comes to us in a person. And that's not me saying it's mindless, because it dazzles one's mind. It, It grows one's mind. It causes one's mind to soar. But this is so much more than just getting the right information. It's so much more than having the right doctrine. Paul says in verse 21, you did not come to know Christ this way. Like, look what he says. He says, when you heard about Christ. You know, you can take a pen right now and, 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 and scratch out the word about because it's not in the Greek. It's not hearing about Christ. It should read, when you heard Christ. Have you heard Christ? I'm not talking about some audible voice, but I am talking about a real encounter through his revelation with a real God. That's why the, 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 the Bible talks about taste and see that the Lord is good because the information is more than information, but the information becomes sensation. We hear him. We encounter him. And therefore, we know him. Do you know him? In verse 21, I love how Paul puts this because Paul is one of these persons that always says Christ, Christ, Christ. And here he, he, he almost, for Paul, gets off the page. And now he talks about the truth that is in who? Jesus. And I don't want to make more of this than I should, but Paul doesn't use Jesus that often. And when he does, he always attaches Christ to it. But what Paul is telling us here, I think, and the commentators would agree with me, that this is not some mystical, abstract truth, kind of the way I, I, was, I was taught it in seminary, but it's the simple truth of Jesus that we read about in here. This historical flesh and blood God-man who walked this earth, who came, was born, lived, walked, died, raised, ascended. And he taught us the way to walk like him. He taught us the truth about him and about God. And he showed us the way to God. And even a child, a child can understand this truth of Jesus. 
In fact, Jesus says you must become like a child to even know this truth. Love that scene. Jesus entering Jerusalem for the final time. The triumphal entry. And he goes all the way into the temple. And the excitement is crescendoing. And then they take the sick to him. I mean, he's right there in the temple. He heals them. And what do the children do? Luke's gospel says they see this and they start singing and dancing. The kids, they see it. They see Jesus. And they sing and they dance. Are you singing? Are you dancing? See, because then the educated scribes and the Pharisees come up to Jesus and say, would you tell those children to be quiet? And Jesus says, he quotes Psalm 8, you have ordained praise from the mouths of babes and infants. You know, there's nothing more profound, is there? And hearing a little child sing, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Because you know when that child is singing that, it's so much more than a song. It's their heart, because their heart sees. Can you sing that song? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And can you sing it like a child? See, I think this is why Jesus, at another time he prays, he says, Father, I I, I thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned and you revealed it to little children. The way we come to this truth, it is doctrinal. It is real, objective information. But we come to know it. We come to taste and see it through an encounter with the living God, through his living word, where his living Christ, his Jesus, is. Take that demoniac. That raging idiot. And in one day he's touched. He's just touched by the finger of God. It's an encounter. Have you been touched? Do you know the truth of Jesus? This is why Paul in Ephesians 1 verse 18, he says, God, I I pray that you would open the eyes, not just of their mind, open the eyes of their heart, that their heart may see. And see, we believe not because we see, but we see because we believe. And those two things are very different. In other words, our understanding always proceeds from our faith. As we trust him like children, he opens the eyes of our heart to see him. 
to know him. Do you know him? And see, the beautiful thing when we know him, it's, it, 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 it is doctrine, but it's so much more than doctrine. It is information, but it's also sensation. It's an encounter with the king of the universe. And it's not that we just know him, but he, this is what's so amazing, he knows us. I mean, listen to David in, in, in Psalm 139, one of my favorite psalms, and I'll just read a little bit right now, but you can read the rest of it later. David says, you have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit, you know when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar, you discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely, and you hem me in. Behind and before, you laid your hand upon me, such knowledge is just too wonderful for me. See, until we have this kind of encounter with truth, there will be no change. That's why Jesus' last prayer to his Father, sanctify them, sanctify them, Father, with your truth. Okay. The kind of change that we're talking about. It's intense. I mean, look, look at verses 22 through 24. Paul says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Listen, people come to me who want to become Christians, but they're scared that, okay, if I become a Christian, now I can't have sex anymore. Or if I become a Christian, I have to start giving my money away. So, you know, they ask questions like that. Rod, if I do this, do I have to give those things up? Answer? Yeah, (laughs) you better believe it. You were scared there for a moment, weren't you? <laughs> but this is a wrong question. Because being a Christian isn't just moving from one set of behaviors to another set of behaviors. It's not moving from one set of, of, of ethic to a whole other set of ethic. Becoming a Christian is about an old you being put to death and a new you being raised to life. I mean, it's massive. I mean, if you look at this like, like, like a tree, because if it wasn't this, you know what Paul would do? Paul would just skip verses 22 through 24, and he'd go right to 25 through 31. And he'd say, okay, here's the new set of behaviors for a Christian. But it's not that. Think of a tree. Think of the fruit on a tree. There is no fruit without a change in its roots. And what Jesus does and what the gospel does when the truth comes into us, it doesn't just change the fruit, but it goes right to the root. He changes us at the core of who we are. 
So we're not just given a new set of rules and behaviors, but we're given a whole new self. A new heart. A new you. That's why the Bible uses words like spiritual rebirth or being born again because this captures the magnitude of the kind of change that God and his truth and his gospel works in a person's life. In fact, look at verse 24. Paul actually has the audacity to say the kind of change we are talking about is that you will become like God. That's what he's changing us to be. Do you know that? And notice, what is the first quality that oozes from a changed life? What is it? Look at verse 25. It's truth. See, when the truth of Jesus goes into a person, when it goes all the way into a person, to its deepest deepest parts, to its secret places, to all its dungeons and private spots, where we're changed to the core, we become our true selves. What comes out? Truth. Truth goes in. Truth goes out. We're now people of integrity. What's what's the root for integrity? Integer. What's an integer? An integer is a whole. That's what integrity means. You're no longer a bunch of fractions, but you are a whole. There's no longer a private self and a public self. There's no, no longer a, a, a place where you're this self here, but you're this self here, and then you have this pseudo self or identity over here. You are one you, a whole, real, authentic, full of integrity. And therefore, what comes out of you is truth. And see, then Paul goes on to talk about this whole list of virtues that define the person who's been changed by the truth of Christ. It's from how we treat each other. It's to how we talk. It's to how we forgive. It's to how we handle our emotions. It's going into the next chapter, how we conduct ourselves sexually. See, this is all the fruit that grows out of a changed root. And what I want you to do this week is I want you to read this list, starting in verse 25. It goes all the way to chapter 5, verse 11. And I want you to ask yourself, does this truth that's gone in me, does it flow out of me? Am I a real, authentic man or woman of integrity? Do I sin in my anger? Do I bring integrity to my work? Do I take the work of my hands and share it with people in need? What about the way that I talk? What comes out of my mouth? Does it build people up or does it tear people down? See, this is what a a life that's been changed and transformed by the truth of Jesus will look like. 
Okay, I want to end with this. How? How do I change? How do I become new? And what I want to say right now, because some of you are skeptics, you're cynics, you've been in church your whole life and you haven't experienced change. And you don't know right now that people can change, that that your life can change, that your heart can change, that your character can change, that inside-out change is possible through the truth of Jesus. Because I think so many of us today just... We say it with our lips that we believe in change, but with our hearts, we, we think that's a lie. That people can't change. That my marriage can't change. That my relationships can't change. That my view of myself can't change. That this addiction I have can't change. That my depression can't change. And then we just go through, through life trying to cope. First of all, we just try to create the right circumstances. We try to get the right job. We try to live in the right home, in the right neighborhood. We try to find the right spouse. We live to control anything and everything around us. Why? We can't change. And then we hide. We need to hide because we can't change. So we have to hide. We have to hide the addiction. We have to hide that area of brokenness. We have to put a good face on everything. And then we start to medicate. We have to medicate the depression. We have to medicate the fear. We have to medicate the anxiety. We have to medicate the pain and the disappointments. And I've just described the church. He can change us. The truth of Jesus is here to change us. Jesus says, you must be born again. And he's not talking about some cosmetic or superficial change. He's talking about a new self, a new heart, a new you. Think about Augustine. Augustine, oh, he was so carnal. He was a sex addict. And he became one of the greatest church fathers and the change that God did in his heart and life, it was, it was radical. And he talks about that one time in his life when he sees one of his former lovers and he's not pawing her and he's not manipulatively trying to control and talk her into bed, but kind, a gentleman. And then he goes, goodbye. And she looks at him as like, Augustine, it is I. And he looks back at her and he says, I know, but it is not I. It changes us. And I think the way to change is right here in the text, and I'll end with it. It starts with... It starts with 5 verse 1. I had to include this verse because Paul says... Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. (laughs) Dearly loved children. He doesn't come into our lives and just beat us up. Like, what's wrong with you? He doesn't try to change us through fear and intimidation. He changes our heart by melting it. Dearly loved 
children. No longer infants just tossed back and forth. No longer orphans left in a field to die. But, but children with a father who loves us. And then the next verse, and a brother, a big brother, Jesus, who gave his life for us. I mean this with all my heart, without knowing that truth about God, your father, and God, your big brother, Jesus, your heart will never change. Your, 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 your behavior might, but not your heart. Verses 22 through 24, Paul says, put off the old self, put on the new self. Let me tell you just a little bit here as I studied this this week in the Greek. These verbs are in what is called the aorist tense. Now, we don't have this tense in English. The, the Greek is, is very intricate and complex. But what the aorist tense is, it's a completed action that's been done in the past that now comes into the present. Meaning that verses 22 through 24 could or should read, I have put off the old self, and I have put on the new self. And this is all consistent with what Paul says in Romans 6, verse 6, where he says, the old self has been crucified, and the new self has been raised to new life in Christ. Same thing in Colossians 3, 9 to 10. It's a past action of putting off the old, putting on the new, that comes into the present. Meaning, in the present, because of what's been done in the past, a completed action. I have a choice to make right now. Am I right now, in this moment, going to live in the old? Or am I going to live in the new? And see, what changes for the Christian, it's not becoming something we aren't, but rather it's becoming something we already are. We are new creations. The old is gone. The new has come. And right now I have the choice, and you have the choice. Every moment of every day. Am I going to be like a dog that returns to my vomit and lives in that old self? Or am I going to live in the new? And see, this, this in my mind now, I need to see what this looks like very practically. I mean, I want, the, I want my feet to hit the ground. I don't want this to be abstract. And I think the text gives it to us. That's why I like the bookends of this text. Because I love the NIV, but I just wish... In verse 17, rather than saying, so I tell you this and insist on the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, that they would use the word that's actually there. It's walk. No longer walk as the Gentiles do. And then in verse 5, verse 1, it says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of Christ, which is love. And see, the reason why I like this word walk, because really all of life is a walk. 
And the Bible calls us to a specific kind of walk. And see, what a walk does for me is it, it says, I'm, do, 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 I, do I step here? Or do, do I step here? Do I, do I go over here? Or do I go over here? And therefore, to walk, I need two things. First thing I need is I need a path. And that's where I, where I draw, draw you to verse 20, where Paul says, You did not learn Christ this way. See, Jesus came to this world not just to be born, not just to die and be raised and ascend, but he also came to this wor- world to show us the way, the path, the narrow road. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And he showed us how to walk. And he showed us how to walk his path. And he's the truest example. We must learn Jesus. The second thing to walk, I need a shepherd. I not only need the path, but I need someone who's going to lead me. And Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And my sheep, they know my voice. And they listen to me. And they obey me. And Paul says, be imitators of God, of Jesus. Walk in love as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. Do you see your shepherd? Are you walking his path? Fix your eyes on Christ, the author and the perfecter of your faith. And just, Christian, become what you are. Let's pray. What a way you've given us, Lord. What a path. What an example. What a shepherd. <laughs> Just pray today, Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know Jesus, open the eyes of their heart right now, Lord. Show them who you are. Drive them to your written word. Drive them to your gospels. And may the spirit open their heart for them to see Jesus. And for all of us today, Lord, I just pray that we would be on your path with our eyes fixed on you, living our life to follow you. Wherever you lead us, we will go. May we become all that you are for your glory in Jesus' name.